morning, everyone. Come on in and take a seat and continue all of those great conversations at the end of the service. I welcome you in the name of the Lord, both those of you here in the sanctuary and those of you who are joining us online. So glad that you're here. I don't know if you guys know this or not, but the great reformer, Martin Luther, who's probably most well-known for his work on Romans and on Galatians, actually had a love affair with the book of Ephesians. He called Ephesians the Alps of the New Testament. This is, this is what he says. There is a relentlessness to the work and power of the redemption of Jesus Christ to do for me, in me, and through me that which I had no power to do for myself. I love that word. Don't you like that? There's a relentlessness to it. In other words, God's not going to stop doing in you that good purpose which he has planned from the beginning. Today, I want to key in on a revelation that God gave me personally back in 1977. And that work has continued a revolution in my life right to this very day. So if you have your Bibles, could you open up to Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians 1, or your phone, or whatever it is that you personally use. Ephesians chapter 1, and beginning reading in verse 4. says this, Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. And what I want to talk to you about are three specific words this morning that happen in three consecutive verses. The first is in verse 4 where it says, He chose us. And then in verse 5, he adopted us, and then in verse 6, He accepted us. So what I want to talk to you about today is chosen, adopted, and accepted in Him. Uh, we touched last week on that word chosen, so I don't want to belabor that, but let me remind you that the word chosen means specially and specifically chosen. Um, I don't know if you guys ever had this experience when you were young, you're in gym class, and the coach wants two teams. So he picks two people out of the whole thing, and usually they're the most popular, the most athletic kids, and he puts them up front and says, you two are the captains, you need to pick one after the other. Remember the, those things? W what was the one thing you dreaded more than anything else? Being the last one. Because when they picked you, what did it mean? It meant they really didn't want you, they were stuck with you. You were the last one to be picked. Well, I want to suggest to you that when God uses the word chosen, what he's telling us in effect is, you're not the last on my list. I looked for you first. I put my name upon you. I selected you. I chose you. And I chose you not only to be mine, but I chose you for a specific purpose. In other words, you have a destiny that God has intended for your life. God chose us, and he doesn't regret that choice one bit. Too many of us live with this lie in our hearts and minds, that God chose us, but if He had the option, He would undo that choice. Because once He got to know us, He knew what a, a, a crazy person we really are. 
But the truth is, God knowing everything about you, knowing what you had done and knowing what you're going to do, God still specifically chose you. You are chosen in the beloved, it says. And then number two, uh, he says he adopted us. And there, that word adopted, actually Paul paints for us two word pictures as it were. The first was a picture that would have been very familiar to the Jews, and the second would have been familiar to Romans. And remember, Paul was a Jewish citizen, but he had Roman citizenry as well. He, he was a, a member, as it were, of two different people. So Paul paints a picture that both would understand and tries to help them understand the deeper meaning of this word adopted. The Jews understood adoption much as we probably would understand it. You know, it's where you're taken from one family and you're brought into another family. You're adopted and you're grafted into that family. And Paul makes it clear that all of us were a member of Adam's family, but we have now been grafted or adopted into the family of God. We sang so much about that this morning. He's chosen us. He's adopted us. He's brought us. I am a member of the family of God. One of the things that is true, or was true, in every state in the union was this. There are certain rights that you have with your natural-born children that you do not have with an adopted child. And I know it's a right that none of us would ever actually want to use. But you have the right under law to disown your children and to remove your name from your natural born child. Did you know that? You could do that. I know people who have actually done it. You could disown your children. But interestingly, in the United States of America and many nations around the world, for many, many years, you had to, when you adopted a child, forego that right. In other words, once you adopted that child, that child was yours forever. And I think Paul uses this word adopted for that very reason. He wants you to know that when God brings you into His family, there's a sense of permanence to it. He's not going to ever undo that adoption. You are His forever. I want to also be clear that when Paul talks about being adopted as sons, predestined as sons to be adopted into his family, he's using the male noun, as it were. I think this applies to you no matter what gender you might be. You are loved, accepted, and wanted by God. You're adopted. You're grafted into his family. And Paul just happens to, in that somewhat patriarchal kind of time frame, use a term that they would be more familiar with and more comfortable with. Just like if you're talking to somebody else who's from a different nation, you might use terms that they would be more familiar with. Paul does that here. But Paul also uses the term adoption in a Roman mindset. And the Roman mindset was slightly different than the Jewish because the Jewish just looked at adoption as you were brought from one family into another. But the Roman idea of adoption had more to do with status and position and rank and your place in the family more than just that you're now a member of the family. It's, it's what, what is your rank, as it were, within the family? It has to do with status. It has to do with privilege. And it has to do with position. It emphasizes distinction, in other words. It talks to you, in other words, about your inheritance rights. So it's not just that you're brought into the family, but because you're brought into the family, you actually have certain inheritance rights that are yours just by being adopted. Um, when we speak of an adopted child, most often we think of that child brought into a family, but in our heart of hearts, in our rational mind, we know 
they're not quite the same as a natural-born child. Because a natural-born child has a part of our nature in them. Well, Paul wants to make it clear that that's not true. But take it one step farther. Peter, later on in the New Testament, Peter says every one of us have tasted of God's divine nature. So even though you've been adopted in, you actually bear something of the nature of God. And the truth is, I have many, many friends who have adopted children into the family, and they have said they have become part of the nature of who we are in our family. They're as much ours as our natural children are. And that's the kind of picture that Paul's trying to paint here, is that you've been brought into the family, you have that nature within you, and you have inheritance rights that are yours, just like your natural-born children would. In Galatians 4, Paul uses this example. If you have your Bible, it's Galatians 4, and beginning in verse 1. You can just follow it up on the screen as well. Paul, the same writer, says this. Now I say that the heir, and again, we're talking about inheritance rights, the heir, as long as he's a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he's a master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Why? That we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ Jesus. In Ephesians, Paul speaks of being brought into the family and the fact that because you now bear His name, you have certain inheritance rights. In Galatians, Paul explains it a little bit more where he talks about this child. And the word in the Greek for child is techna or technon. And it literally means a little child, like a little tot that runs around, like we see in the church, running around making noise on Sunday mornings. That, that's a child. But Paul also uses the term in verse 5 to receive the adoption as sons. And the word that he uses there, he could have used three different words. But the word that Paul uses there in the Greek is the word huias. Huias. And it literally means a child who has now reached an age of maturity. They have a place of standing. They're, they're full grown, in other words. They're able to take over the family business, as it were. And that's the word that Paul uses there. And the truth is, the Jews understood something of this because the Jews had two transition rights within their own culture. The first was, when a child reached about the age of 12, they would have a ceremony where that child is recognized as no longer being a child, but being an adult. Now, not full-grown adult, but an adult. At age 12, they were recognized. It was called a bar mitzvah, or if you were a girl, a bat mitzvah, where you were recognized as being an adult. But one other ceremony that often is unrecognized is that often at about the age of 30, a young man, usually the firstborn child, was then brought before the father, and the father would have him sit in front of him, and he would place upon his shoulders all of the responsibilities and rights of the family as a whole. In other words, this is now your family. You're now the head of the home. And if you think about it, isn't that really exactly what happened to Jesus at his baptism? At about the age of 30, he goes down into the waters of the baptism and a voice speaks from heaven and it's the Father saying, this is my beloved Son. In other words, he's saying, that's my boy in whom I am well pleased. When he says well pleased, that's the word that means satisfied. In other words, I have 
checked over your life and I am satisfied that you're able to handle the Father's business. Which is why later on in Matthew 28, Jesus was able to say, all authority has been given unto me. So that was the word adopted. He's chosen us. He's adopted us. Now let's look at the word accepted. And of all the words, this is the most aggressive word. It literally means, if you're taking notes, pursued by grace. Pursued by grace. There are some of you here today even who believe that if you've fallen in some way, if you failed, the only way to get back in God's good graces is you have to almost pay penance. You have to grovel for a while. You know, you just have to go low to show them that you're really sorry for what you did. And then maybe, maybe if God's feeling really inclined towards you, He might let you back in His presence. And you live your life that way. But the word that is used here for accepted is not just an active word. It's a proactive word. It's saying that in that moment when you've done something wrong, and there's not a one of us in this room that haven't done something wrong, whether before God or before our parents, and you're standing there giving an account, and in that moment when your inclination is to back away just a little bit because you know you're not wanting to leave God. That's not your point. But you know that you've done something wrong. You've offended God. And there's a little bit of you that in shame and embarrassment wants to hide your face. And in that moment when your temptation is to draw away from God, the word that Paul uses here says, in that very moment while you're backing away, God's pursuing you with His grace. He's not going to allow you to live in embarrassment and shame anymore. And for too many of you, it's not just that you have guilt in your life where you've done something wrong. Every one of us has done something wrong. But you live with shame covering your life. as if It's not just that you didn't do good, you're not good. And Paul says, I want you to know, not only has He chosen you, not only has He accepted you, He's pursuing you with His grace. He's coming after you. He's not waiting until you come after Him. He's coming after you. The Holy Spirit is sometimes called the Hound of Heaven. And that that can sound like it's a bit pejorative, but the truth is, what he's saying is, God is coming after you. The psalmist put it this way, where can I go from your presence? If I go up to the heights, you're there. But if I also go to the depths, you're there. There's no way I can get away from you. And that's not a threat, by the way. That's a promise from God. He's coming after you with His grace. He's bridging the gap of my shame and my failure with His presence. God's chosen us, He's adopted us, and He's accepted us. That's the kind of relationship that Paul is telling us that every one of us who are believers, who are disciples, who are followers of Jesus Christ have with the Father. Every one of us. Chosen, adopted, and accepted. Now, what I want to do now is a little bit different for me. Uh, In fifth grade, I had a teacher. How many of you guys remember your fifth grade teacher? How many of you can't remember if you were in fifth grade? You didn't pass? Okay. I had a fifth grade teacher. Uh, It was uh, my first male teacher. His name was Mr. Smith. And he did something that, honestly, to this day, I love, and I think it cultivated something in me in a greater way. I always loved to read. Uh, I can remember in second grade having to go to the library and take books out and reading, and they had the book club back in those days, you remember, where if you earn enough points, you could get books I love to read, but Mr. Smith, every day after lunch, would have us kids sit in our seats, close our eyes, and he would read to us. So I'm going to ask you to do that today. And I know it's dangerous because all of you, well, first of all, it's dangerous because some of you, if you close your eyes, we know what can happen. Uh, 
but I'm going to ask you to close your eyes, but still to engage, to listen to what is said. So if you would, just take a moment, close your eyes, just rest before the Lord, open your heart to hear this story. It's a made-up story, but I think it's a good story that illustrates what Paul is trying to say here. So if you could, just calm your spirits. Just take a moment, calm your spirits. Press into the Lord. Invite His presence into your heart. Literally do it. Say, come, Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. Invite Him in. Now listen to this story. A young family decides that they would like to adopt a child. So they go to the adoption agency and they say, we would like you to tell us about the neediest child you have that is available for adoption. The director of the agency looks a bit surprised and says, the neediest? Everyone who comes in here asks to see the papers on what we know about the child's background, its IQ, its social influences, uh, what has gone into the makeup of the child. People just don't ask for a needy child. But this young couple says, we've taken a lot of time thinking about this and we really do want your neediest child. The director says, I don't even have to check my records. I already know the neediest child. We have had her now for two years and no one has had any interest in adopting her and probably never will. You see, she was born with a birth deformity so that when she eats, the food drools out of her mouth as she chews. And because of the family situation into which she was born, she's developed some real personality quirks. She was punished by her mother by being stuffed in a washing machine while it was running. She was disciplined by her father by being placed in a bathtub with the water so high that the only way she could breathe was to stick her nose just out of the water. So you can imagine she has some terrible fear issues. She often wakes up screaming in the night and we have a hard time pacifying her. She's really a very difficult child. Are you sure you want her? Yes, they said, we want her. The day finally comes. The paper's been all filled out and filed. The courts have accepted this adoption and the price has been paid. Because you need to remember there's always a price for an adoption. It's now legal. She is now their daughter. They bring her home and imagine, if you would, this scene. I know it's unthinkable, but imagine with me, if you would, that they come home with her, they bring her into the living room and they sit her down on a hard back wooden chair and they sit across from her on a couch and they say to her, we want to talk to you. We've adopted you and you're welcome in our home. But there are a few points of understanding that we need to have right from the very beginning. First, you need to remember no one else wanted you. We've decided we'll let you come and live with us. We'll clothe you, we'll feed you, we'll even educate you. But you must remember you're different from us and from our children. We have other children who are our real children. And while we do promise that you may live with us, you have to keep in mind that you're not the same as them. You're not as good as them. You may eat with us, but if there are any strange behaviors that become embarrassing or inconvenient to us, we'll have to have you eat in another room away from the rest of the family so that you don't disturb us. We understand that there are times when you scream out in the night, and that will just not be tolerated. 
if you cry out, will lock you in the basement where you won't bother the rest of the family. And if you ever begin to think that you could run away, we will bar all the windows and lock the doors. Now make no mistake, you may stay here and we will take care of you. We just want you to remember that you're very different from us. And we have to make these terms for dealing with you for our good. Now you and I know that if that would have happened, the chances of this person ever, ever becoming a whole healthy person is more remote than the furthest star. All that's happened is you have introduced a new set of traumas, of bondages, and of fears. But what if these parents brought this same girl home and did this? They brought her into the door and they sat on the couch and they called her over to them and she approached them fearfully, timidly. And they said, come, sit between us. And dad lifts her chin says, look at me. I want you to know we have longed for this day. We could not wait for you to be a part of our family. You're not just wanted. You've been loved before we even knew you. Everything we have been about for our entire lives has been for this very moment when you could finally be a part of our family. You can't know the joy that we feel having you finally with us. More than you could ever know, we love you. We know that there are times when you're frightened in the night, and there are other times when different things happen that cause you a fear. And we want you to know that every time that happens, all you have to do is call for us. And we'll come running. And we will protect you. And you'll be safe. We know that even simple things like eating can be daunting for you. And we want you to know that because you are now a part of our family, because you're now our daughter, no one can ever reject you again. We've adopted you and you are our daughter just the same as our natural born children. No one and nothing can ever change that. You're ours. And finally, you're here. Everything we have is yours, and we never want you to go. We love you with all of our heart. Welcome to our family. Now just take a moment and let that soak into your heart. The Bible says God chose us. None of us can plead exemption from being the neediest one of all. We all fit that. We were all born with a fundamental birth defect because we were born into sin. Because of how life out in the world has treated us, we've all developed some strange coping techniques out of fear and anger. But right now, the Father reaches down and He says, I chose you. I know you're the neediest. But that's okay, because when you receive my love, your deepest needs will be met. I chose you and I adopted you. You are now a full member of my family with all of the rights to my inheritance. All of my riches are yours. And I have fully accepted you no matter what you ever do. 
I will always love you. Chosen, adopted, and accepted. That's what God has done for you. That's the truth that Paul is trying to convey to us out of Ephesians 1. On those grounds, there is the possibility of us not only becoming whole, but actually being able to be used of God. No longer insecure where we have to somehow try to prove something to God or people. No, we're, we're at peace with him. Now, what I want you to do now is as much as you can, if you could kind of do what Jocelyn is doing right now. Scooch down in your chair, put your head back a little bit if you can. I know this is like weird for you, but do it anyways if you can. Just scooch down, put your head back. And now if you can, if you can, if you're willing, just take your hands like this and just hold them out. Just hold them out and say, I receive from you, Father. Close your eyes. Just say, I receive from you, Father. All that is yours is mine. Breathe in. The scripture says the Holy Spirit is the breath of God. It says he breathed over creation and it came together. Well, as you breathe in every breath, think about the fact that you're breathing in the very presence of the living God. You're breathing him in. Those of you who've ever had issues with oxygen, you know how important every breath is. And it's not just getting the air in, it's being able to process the air. My mom had a disease where she could breathe fine, but her body wouldn't process the oxygen. Well, as you breathe in, allow God to process his breath in your soul. Again, just soak in his presence. Just it's kind of like a little baby held by its mom. There's such trust. They don't have to think about it. They know they're safe. They're being held. And they know they're being loved. And that's what you're receiving right now. The love of God, your Father. I was raised in a tradition that says God's angry at you and you have to somehow make it right. You have to do good works. And if you do enough, then good. Or you have to go through certain hoops. Come to realize that's not the heart of God at all. He loves you with an everlasting love. And before you ever knew him, he chose you before the foundations of the world. And it wasn't just enough that he chose you. He wants you to know you're wanted. You're wanted. Even as you are. You're wanted. With all of your weirdnesses, you're wanted. You're not all there yet. You're wanted. So much so that he pursued you. With all of his grace, he pursues you. Father, right now I ask you, in your holy name, to sweep over your house here. This is not the only house that bears your name but it's the one that you've called us to be a part of here in Warsaw. And I thank you for the other churches that are in town and what each one represents of your kingdom. But right now I'm asking you to sweep by the wind of your spirit through this house and to touch souls deep within their hearts where they have felt unlovable. 
They have felt unworthy. They have felt the, the piercings of shame and fear of being unacceptable in some way. God, I pray that you would touch hearts deeply and begin, even as you did for me back in 1977, begin a revolution that changes their life forever. Do that good work which you promised you would do until the day of Jesus Christ. Father, we know that your word's clear. Your, your, your son is coming back for his bride. But in the meantime, we want to know the, the luxury of your presence. And for us, it's not an extravagance. It's, it's life for us. We can't live without it. So would you not do that, I pray. And as each person today as they've tried to scrunch down in their chairs a little bit in that weird kind of position, and as they've lifted their hands before you, I pray that each one would genuinely have a hunger for you. Now, even as Frank read earlier, because they were in one place, in one accord, you sent forth your Spirit. Well, Lord, hear the unity cry of our hearts. Come, we pray. Come upon us. Arise within us. Don't care how it happens. Come, we pray. Fill every heart and every life with your presence. So that when we go out the doors of this house, we go out as the church into the community where we can share the love of God that we have received. That same love that God has for the whole world. Touch hearts and lives today. Set them free from the sense of having to earn anything or to perform well enough or the shame of what they've done or what they haven't done. Lord, let all of that be healed in the wonder of your presence, I pray. In the name of Christ, amen. Amen. Well, yeah, you can sit up now. Some of you, wake up. Thank you for coming and being a part with us. And do pray that God would bless you as you go out from this house. Be praying for our uh, folks who are up in the Adirondacks right now on the camping trip, that God would give them all a safe journey back and they would have had a powerful time with God while they're up there. God bless you. Have a great day.